What do you say? That it's a weekly podcast. Who said that? Me? No, no, it's monthly, isn't it? Surely. That's a lie. No. Okay. Yeah, it's meant to be weekly, but hey, it's another month. And it's a super Saturday. It must be another Witty 924. So it's October, everyone. It's uh, what we call autumn here in the fabulous UK. But uh, for my friends and colleagues across the pond, it's the fall. And it fits perfectly with the fall of leaves smacking you in the face as you're walking along the street. That is the joy of the fall and autumn. Equally, having lots of leaves all over your car and in places you never thought they could actually reach. But that's, uh, yeah, <laughs> one of those things, isn't it, about the winter months ahead. So I have um, been lame again. I know, once again, I find myself ticking over month to month with the podcast. But uh, today I've done something a little bit different. And today I'm putting the podcast First. So I think from that perspective, if you're listening now, you are in for a treat. You're going to get the news before anyone else does on any other platform. So for uh, for that, sit back, enjoy, and uh, let's start firstly with an update on the car. I think, <laughs> I'm trying to think very much uh, about what I covered last time, and I think there was a whole bunch of fuel stuff in there. I mean, it was it was fuel stuff for a long time, wasn't it? I mean, it's uh, if you if you've uh, stayed the the journey, then well done you. Uh, it's been a tough one, and I think if you are currently working on a Porsche nine two four nine four four, those um, sort of uh, types of Porsche right now, then no doubt you would have had some sort of fun with the fuel system. I'm sure. So, I um got to a point where the final two pieces of the fuel system, having replaced the pump and all of that good stuff, I landed back in the engine at a component piece called the warm-up regulator. The WUR, as uh, you might see in three-letter acronyms. Now, to, to be fair, I, I think in hindsight, most people would have started here and... A part of me thinks, yeah, I should have. And a part of me thinks, actually, if I, uh, I'm sort of pleased I didn't because I actually renewed quite a lot of the bits on the car that actually needed doing. So it's it's one of those things, really. I think I, I've done more work than maybe I, I needed to, but it's all in, in, in the long run, a much better place for the car to be. So I think the warm-up regulator itself, if you are, if you're you know, familiar with this type of, of thing then um you will find that they are generally the 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 place that most people start and they're generally the the problem uh child of cold start issues and where i got to with mine is uh i actually took it apart so ideally what you're meant to do is is, is remove them from the car and they have some quite delicate pieces inside. There's a ceramic uh, heating element that warms up a 
a metallic strip that then controls the fuel pressure, which is based on a spring mechanism. Now, there is an inlet and an outlet valve on the top, which uh, two of the fuel pipes uh, screw into. And as a part of the start, there's a, a diaphragm piece, or a very, very, um, I don't know what, what best to call it. Yeah, it, it's like a diaphragm, which sits um, around the inlets, as uh, the inlet and outlet. Uh, and, and really what you have to do is you have to take apart the unit and take apart the metallic strip to get to this diaphragm. It's super, super delicate and really clean it or, or, or potentially replace it, but mainly clean it. Now, when I looked inside of mine, I took mine apart. It was very clean inside. I mean, it, it looked almost new. So a part of me thought, actually, maybe what is is the issue is that there's just something blocking in, in the inlet and outlet uh, areas. And when I actually looked, there was a lot of dirt and grit and yes, it's just foreign stuff that shouldn't be there. And uh, so I, I didn't actually take apart the diaphragm. I, I chose not to because I just didn't think it was needed. Now, I had a spare warm-up regulator as well. When I looked at both, I mean, side by side, the old one that um, or the spare one that I had was in really... Uh, bad condition it was corroded inside all, all the all the parts that when you read a lot of the reviews online about how to fix these things that that's generally what you expect to see what i when i took mine off i you know i had none of that it was it's super clean it looked new inside so anyway i did the cleanup used a uh, brake fluid cleaner sprayed it all out looked perfect replaced it on the car and hey presto simple turn of a key and the car fired into life for the first time properly under its own <laughs> yeah under its own steam as they say uh in um, I, I think it must be about 10 months or so must be so super good day that was to finally solve why the car wouldn't start by itself on the turn of the key what i was having to do previously if you've been following me on youtube is I would have to lift the uh, airflow meter plate, which is in the air um, in the air box itself, uh, which is a part of which is attached as a as a part of the unit to the fuel distributor unit. And yeah, that that by lifting that plate, you override ultimately the warm up regulator's job to send fuel to the injectors and so on. So hey, uh, it's a fix. It's running fantastically well now. There is a second piece that um, I've started to look at as well, which is the auxiliary air regulator or unit. And that is also a small device or unit that's bolted to the top of the air manifold or just to the side of where the warm-up regulator sits. That too has a, I think it's some sort of heater element with a, a bimetallic, yeah, metallic strip that inside should when it's cold be fully open to allow maximum airflow so when you turn the key and you start it it's of the the times when we all used to have very old uh, cars of of you know where you pull out the choke and stuff i think it's similar principle that this allows you to have a, a better mixture uh with with air and, and so on and fuel to allowed to have slightly higher revs when you start at cold so the car's meant to tick over at 
9,500 revs. Well, not 9,000 because that would be crazy and there'd be pistons flying everywhere. So yeah, 900 revs, uh, for example, then on a cold start, that auxiliary air unit would, would come into play and ultimately allow maybe 1,100 revs, 1,200 revs initially as the, the engine started to warm and then it would drop down to the, to the right uh, yeah, to the right number or the right revs. Now, what mine's doing is starting perfectly, but starting at low revs. So it's actually ticking over probably around 750, 800. So it's not that it's struggling, but you can see that it, it's it's very much not the case of uh, what it should be doing. Now, I, um, again, took that one off, cleaned it all up, it seems a slightly better, but it's still not doing the right job. Again, I also have a spare one of those, so I am going to do a little test at one of uh, one of uh, the suggestions on the YouTube uh, channel. Chris actually did that. Uh, big shout out to Chris. Thanks for this. He said to um, just basically what you should do as a test is, is run it off a 12-volt uh, battery um, with the, the electrical connectors that are attached to the unit and just see if the, the strip uh, actually turns to allow full uh, airflow through the, the unit itself. And that um, that should take about maybe one to three minutes, somewhere around that, just, just to see if it fully opens. Now, um, I'm going to do that on my, my spare one just to see if that actually works. And uh, if so, then I'll give that spare one a clean up and uh, maybe put that on the car and just see if there is a significant difference but um so those are the two main bits the car's now running it's 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 starting under its own steam all good there so we we have um yeah fixed and solved that issue now what that meant for me and the next steps really was uh to just just finalize really the the mot bits of work that i needed to complete to get the car into the MOT center. So in the UK, that's the a test that we do just to make sure that the vehicle is of a certain safety standard, has all the checks that you would expect uh, through brakes, lights, um, basic engine, um, all of the, the sort of safety checks to make sure that the car is uh, safe to, to travel on the UK roads is um, the best way to put it. And the MOT itself, I had a, a number of outstanding bits that I knew would be instant failures if I did take it to the center there and then. So I um, had to just sort out the lights. One of the one of the big issues I had actually was uh, the, the fog lights. Now, I don't know what happened, but some sort of witchcraft has happened in the past, I don't know, four weeks or so where I did a video taking apart the lights at the back. I did a lot of cleaning up around the connectors. This is something of the old type of cars that I can imagine on, on, on many actually, uh, but certainly for the, the Porsches, you know, the way these things were made, it, everything was very much in the open. So connectors over time would, you know, corrode and the connections themselves would not be great. So. What you had to do was really just take everything apart, clean it with wire brush, you know, maybe a bit of uh, electrical grease and then put it all back together and so on. So that's what I did with all the lights at the back of the car. And I traced that through right up to the fuse box to make sure there's no broken wires, did a few continuity tests. There was power getting to the, the fog light switch. So I was a bit of a, you know, I was at a bit of a loose end. Anyway, I um, 
I took the car for a, a spin around the, the private road that uh, I'm on just to see how it was driving after I got it started and so on. Came back and um, then did a, a bit of a light test just to see, okay, what what's what. And uh, hey, presto, the rear fog lights started working. I mean, it was it was bizarre. <laughs> it's just like just one of those things. I was just like, okay, uh, I have no idea how that happened. And I can only assume it's some sort of faulty connector or something's just sprung back into life and underneath the where the fuse box is on the left passenger side um being a right hand drive the yeah there's there's a bunch of wires under there also are ground so you know i'd clean those up before so i don't know i mean maybe just doing a bit of a cleaning did the trick and and we are where we are so fog lights were working that was going to be a failure that i was um you know, struggling to, to find what the issue was, but they came back to life. So that was a tick in the box. Uh, indicator on the right-hand side, just, uh, again, corroded uh, connectors. So again, clean them all up. Hey, presto, back on board with the indicator. Also, the headlights themselves, the unit. Now, with a 924, when you turn the lights on, obviously, they have to flick up to, to be on. So... If they're not flicking up, then you don't have front lights. I mean, it's really as simple as that. Now, these um, motor units can be a little bit temperamental. There is uh, little tricks around cleaning the connector, which is like a uh, like a swing connector that that ultimately <clears throat> helps the lights go up and down, and uh, it's, a, it's sort of on a rail. Now that can get dirty and, and corroded, and again, that's a, a cleanup uh, challenge that you have to do. I found that actually my connector and the relay that sits as a part of the unit, for some reason, just they just didn't seem to be connecting properly. So again, clean them up, force them in better, and the lights were working on the button as they should. So it's just one of those things. I guess you know, older classic cars, you just got to be. Uh, prepared to take things apart give them a clean give them a, a re-grease and stuff and then put them back together so uh time consuming yet but you know it, it's uh, it is what it is so that got that bit done bought a cover for the yeah the windscreen wiper motor so when i bought this car as with many 924s of of its time over the years covers go amiss and you know whether that's previous owners who forget to put them back on or garages whatever so the two common ones is the cover that covers the windscreen wiper motor and the other one that covers the actual uh timing belt at the front of the engine so both of those were missing when i bought the car i've replaced both of them found them on ebay uh, there's plenty around so uh, you know tidying them up putting them back on but um when i came to put the wiper motor cover on for some reason it wouldn't fit in the place I thought it would and you know tried all different types and it sorted under the window some bizarre and it, yeah for some bizarre reason that I, I just I don't know why but I thought that was the right place but anyway just it just didn't seem to fit anywhere else so anyway uh, again big shout out to Brigadier 7 who uh, or hashtag 7 who uh, sent me a couple of pictures after seeing my last video of like where this cover goes and um, it does slot actually underneath the the framing of the window um and it's a bit of a it's a bit of a push that you have to give it and uh finally got it sorted so that's in that's great both covers are all done um 
And then the final piece was the windscreen washer pump. And again, these things, uh, you know, you just, today's modern cars, you just don't think about things like this. You just, you know, everything works. And generally, uh, this is uh, the frustration of classic cars. All of these things uh, tend to be of, yeah, quite a temperamental state. Now, I, for some reason, again, my car had had some sort of retrofit done to it. So usually the screen wash bottle houses a pump on the outside of it and mine hasn't got that it's it's just it, it's quite a big pump because there's two pumps there's one for the the front lights so they have screen wash uh, uh for the lights themselves that's quite a big pump and then there's another one that uh, sits as a part of the screen wash uh bottle itself on the front um so mine was missing they had retrofitted two what i would call generic universal plastic uh pumps uh they were working well one was working i don't know about maybe 11 12 months ago and that yeah as the car's been sat over time they've they've stopped working and got to a point actually where you know got around to looking at what the issue was uh pipe had snapped off anyway so brittle plastic anyway i decided to buy a, a pretty decent one um one that was metal cased better impellers and stuff like that from a company called tudor does uh, classic car parts it was you know 10 quid for a, a, a much more decent more robust one put that on and hey presto pump working water onto the windscreen which you know if you don't have it's uh, an mot failure here in the uk so that was it so we got to a, the stage of the car being ready for an mot and if you've been following this story this has taken three years like i can't tell you uh how exciting this this moment is where you have put so much time effort blood tears sweat money into the car to get it back to a point where it's going to be road legal and equally something that you could drive almost daily frequently all of that good stuff so part of you thinks have you forgotten anything you know because it's uh some sort of hundred point uh, check that they do on an MOT. It's like brake pipes, linings, bolts, lower control, you know, bushings, everything. So in, in my mind, I'm going through, did I rebuild the front suspension okay? Did I tighten up everything okay? Did I put all the bottom of the engine back on correctly? It, there is no leaks. Did I do the brake system correctly? Did I tighten everything up? Is it bled correctly? Are the brakes working as they should because it's been sat you know, the, I know the disc is good and the pads, but, you know, the surface rust and everything builds up. So, you know, the, the drive to the MOT centre. So in the UK, you're able to drive your car to the MOT centre without an MOT, obviously, and no car tax because you're unable to tax your car legally without an MOT. So those two things sort of walk hand in hand. So you have to book your car in and you're by by the law you're allowed to drive it to the station so if you get stopped and you show that you've got a booking and you're going to go to it you're fine so from that perspective uh i did all the checks i could i i went through everything as i i as i thought they they would and didn't think anything was amiss so today saturday 24th of october 
8.15 in the morning, I took the car to the MOT center and then left it with them. They said it would be 45 minutes or an hour, went off, had some breakfast, the hour passed. And you can imagine I'm sat now thinking the worst, but got the phone call and it passed everyone. I am properly excited that my 94 is finally road legal after three years. It is a big, big achievement. I've learned a hell of a lot on this journey of fixing, replacing, learning how everything works on this car as a non-professional trained mechanic. I must stress that, you know, this is uh, about self learning and, you know, going through the ups and downs as, as a, uh, a self-learning uh, enthusiast on, you know, a classic car. And I've learned a hell of a lot about how to do things wrong, <laughs> nothing do things right. But we now have a road legal car and all of that effort has paid off. So I'm now uh, going to tax the car and I'm going to enjoy it. And yeah, I, I think even though we're in the winter, it's uh, it's just one of those things you got to do, isn't it? you got to go and enjoy the car. You've put so much time and effort in. What it does mean is that um, I will turn a little bit of my time and effort now to the interior of the car. I just, uh, I've got some nice little bits and pieces that need to be uh, fitted just to make it a bit more, you know, comfortable and, and all of that good thing. Uh, there are there are a, a couple of pieces that I just want to fix on the car that uh, not necessarily MOT failures, but just little niggly things like the electric window switches uh, so on the on the driver's side there's a pair one for the window of the driver and one for the window of the passenger the passenger one doesn't work so it's um potentially a new switch new unit maybe a cleanup but i'll i'll look at that it might be the motor in the uh the passenger window itself i i remember i, th I think about three years ago i took it off and cleaned it up but uh, that's something i might have to do again so there's that um also, if if you're familiar with this, there's a uh, sound deadening, almost like sponge part that sits between the gear stick uh, underneath the car and where it joins to the uh, the torque tube or sits on top top of the torque tube, and. This sound unit, yeah, well, this sound deadening piece, it's like a, a bit of foam. And it, it's very rare, actually, to to find these in, in good, you know, in a good state. But what they do is basically stop a lot of the mechanical noise from the torque tube through the gear, well, through the gearbox um, connections to the gear stick, but also the torque tube, which sits directly underneath that opening of where your gear stick goes through the body of the car. And mine does not have it. So I don't mind the mechanical noise. I mean, there's there's nothing um, calm and collective about these cars. They're very analog. They're very mechanical. You hear everything. Uh, you smell everything. <laughs> it's, just the, it's just the nature of classic cars. But those um, particular pieces can obviously make the interior noise uh, much more bearable, if that makes sense. 
not that it's completely crazy in there, but um, that's a piece I've got to go and find and, uh, you know, potentially fit underneath the car. So that that's something I am going to be on the lookout for. So that, um, everyone, is a first for the podcast. You guys know the news before any of the other platforms that I release this stuff on. I will be doing a video to take you through those steps that uh, I went through today just on the MOT, the drive, the first drive, all of that good stuff. And uh, that, yeah, has been a, yeah, a really, really happy day for me today. So it's, uh, it's finally there, three years of great work. So the thing that I always like to, to finish on is a bit of Porsche 924 news. Yeah, we, um, we don't tend to see too much of it out there in the mainstream, but uh, when we do, there's, there's generally some gems in there. And I know I covered some of the auction stuff last time because uh, the 924, in fact, uh, all the sort of front-engined Porsches are all enjoying, obviously, a, an increase in price and uh, collectability and all of that good stuff. So one thing that really stood out this month, and uh, it was news covered by none other than Top Gear, is uh, a fantastic, and I, and I have to say, this, this really is a fantastic uh, bit of news. The GTR Carrera 924, the, the, these are super rare, by the way. Um, the 19 of them that were built for racing, these are the cars that uh, were raced at Le Mans and the various endurance races of the time, you know, Daytona and, and so on. Now, one of these have come up for sale and have been listed at Stratus Auction and Top Gear covered this. It was a, an auction that took place, I believe, if I uh, just click quickly here, we will see, yeah, auction that took place on the 14th of this month. So uh, it uh, is quite a special car. It's um, in silver with like a blue band across the bottom. The driver's uh, Scuteri or Shuti, I think, is probably a better way of saying it. Uh, Bedard and Miller with the three drivers. Uh, some great advertising from Listein and uh, Goodrich and High Tech Radio. So of the time, a little Bosch sticker stuck on there. But it looks a fantastic bit of kit, I have to say. And bizarrely, this, this particular car had 16 bids on it, but did not sell. So... Top Gear have covered a story on this saying, you know, the headline, someone buy this Porsche 924 GTR that raced at Le Mans. It, it really is quite a special car. Now, the previous owner has uh, been a long-time owner and uh, has owned this car for, for some years. And uh, it's been a part of a collection, like many of these. It, um, it still carries all of the... I guess, battle scars of its last race. And uh, it looks like here that um, it entered Le Mans in 1982 and retired after 28 laps with a transmission failure. But uh, it also raced at 24 hours Daytona and countless other endurance races until it was retired officially in 1985. 
So there's a, a nice little snapshot. The collector who's selling it bought it in 1988 and kept it until earlier this year, where it's now up for auction. So it's, uh, yeah, a fine looking thing. It's the two litre 375 brake horsepower engine. And uh, yeah, what a machine. What a machine that would be to, to drive. So yeah, check out the Top Gear story on this. I'll leave a link in the in the description for this podcast that you can have a look. Some fantastic pictures there. And Stratus are the uh, auction site that are currently, yeah, are currently uh, advertising it for auction. There is uh, an interesting button on the right-hand side here where even though this card did not sell at auction and 16 bids were achieved, there's a little button there to make an offer. So if you're feeling up to it and you want a bit of history, only 19 of these exist. So, well, so they say, I, you know, whether that's 19 that were built and 19 survived, uh, hell of a bit of history here. But uh, anyway, I've really enjoyed this podcast, letting you know the great news that I've had today. It makes for a great weekend and no doubt a drink a bit later to celebrate. Thanks for listening. Thanks for all the support, everyone. And please get along and check out some of the videos on YouTube and subscribe and follow me there because there's going to be some great ones now with me actually driving the car rather than fixing it. Who would have thunk it? Take care now.